Our Father and our God, you are holy, holy, holy. Our desire is to lift your name high because you alone are worthy of our praise, our worship, our very lives, everything that we are. You created us. You have redeemed us by the blood of your Son. And we come into your presence this morning singing your praises. It is out of the chaos of this world that our prayer is that you would bring worship. That you would remind us to be still and to know that you are God. The nations will fall. And the kings will bow to the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our wonderful Savior, Jesus. And so we bow our hearts before you right now and ask that you would open them to the words you would speak to us by your Spirit through your servant. Help us to be ready to hear. Help us to be ready to live in response to what you say to us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we have the privilege of having a good friend of mine present the gospel to us. Wes Tabor has led for many years Life and Messiah. He's turned that over to a younger man to lead, but Wes has a passion for God's people, for God's chosen people. Um, I had the privilege of meeting him about a decade ago and have been so encouraged by his love for the Lord. So please welcome Wes Tabor to share the gospel with us this morning as we look at Shalom for Jews and Gentiles. Wow, my heart is full. What a worship time. What a way to begin. So my heart is full and my brain is screaming because there's so much that I want to say. But I want to begin by saying thank you. Thank you for the warm welcome that I've received here. I want to say, on behalf of the missionaries that you support, um, they are blessed by your care and by your prayer. I have been so touched by the emphasis of prayer in this place. We don't fight against flesh and blood, <clears throat> but against principalities and powers. It's a spiritual battle, and it's one on our knees, so thank you. On behalf of the Harris family who serve with life and whom you support, I bring you greetings as well as their thanks. Um, they're especially thankful that there are Israelis who are coming to visit them at the shelter on the lake, and uh, it's a result of your prayer. This is such a time of turmoil and uh, many who have been living outside of Israel, as Israelis have been streaming back into the land because of the situation there, uh, 
and others are leaving because of the situation there. And when Pastor John contacted me with the invitation to be part of a missions conference and told me what the theme was, I pretty quickly had an idea of what would be a good passage to go to. And that's the passage that I'm going to deliver in this hour. But just so you know, I preached a different message in the first hour because of the situation in Israel particularly. I'm also grateful for Friday evening. We met for a brief orientation before taking a group to Temple Bethel, one of our neighborhood synagogues, where we were warmly received. And my heart was blessed as I watched the interaction of folks from this congregation with that congregation. And uh, the fact that they were so welcoming and were happy that we were there. And I was especially happy when I heard folks from Highland Park Baptist say to our Jewish neighbors, we love you and we're praying for you. Uh, what, a, what a tremendous testimony. We want to know how to reach our neighbors. We need to be asking God, how would you have me love my neighbor? Because if we figure out how to love our neighbor, we'll be reaching our neighbor. So I know you're not supposed to have favorite children, <clears throat> so I don't. And you're probably not supposed to have favorite Bible passages, but I do. I love the book of Romans. All of God's word is precious, but there's so much that Paul packs into Romans. So just beginning in chapter one and preaching through chapter 16 <coughs> will be a challenge. But I do want to start in chapter one. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul doesn't sign his letters at the end. He signs them in the beginning so we know that he's the author. But his focus is on the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Messiah Jesus, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Paul, who you remember was raised in a devout Jewish home. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So today he would be wearing the garb of an ultra-Orthodox Jew if he were preserving the traditions of the Jewish community today. Now, it's questionable that that would have been the garb of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, but Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. The customs, the traditions, the doctrine of the Pharisees was something that he was so committed to that when this way, the teaching of the way, this what he considered a false Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth showed up, Paul as one who was 
dedicated to conser conserving and preserving what he understood to be the truth of the Torah, he persecuted the believers. And you know the story of how God interfaced with him as the Lord Jesus revealed himself on the road to Damascus. And interestingly, Paul's job description is given to him not by Jesus in that first encounter, but the Lord speaks to Ananias and says, you tell Paul about what he's going to suffer for my name's sake. But I'm going to send him to the Gentiles and to their kings. Oh, and by the way, to the Jewish people as well. That's Paul's job description. Paul offers himself, his business card says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, called as an apostle, an apostle to the Gentiles. And he tells us in verse 5 that he is preaching the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. The goal of missions is not to glorify our mission board or our church. The goal of missions is the worship of the Almighty, the one true and living God who identifies himself in Scripture as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. We sang in one of our songs about our God who is uh, the fortress of Jacob. It's interesting how much of Old Testament terminology is preserved both in the New Testament and even in our hymnology. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, he's writing to, to Gentiles, called as saints, praise God. Grace to you and peace. Very familiar phrase for Paul, grace and peace. Grace and peace. And in Greek, the word is irene, which the name Irene comes from. If you know somebody named Irene, that means peace in Greek. Uh, Paul's mother tongue was Hebrew, and so shalom is what he would have greeted his Jewish brethren with, just as Jesus did. Shalom Aleichem, peace be unto you. It was a familiar greeting in Jesus' day, which is preserved for us in the New Testament. Well, he thanks God for the Gentiles and for the witness, but I want to skip ahead to verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and the word protos there is the word for especially, uh, especially. It's especially fitting that the gospel goes to the Jewish people because it came to the Jewish people and to us through the Jewish people. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the life transforming, the, the mind altering truth of who God is in his holiness and who we are in our sinfulness like sheep, Isaiah says. We've all gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. Especially fitting, especially appropriate that the gospel which was first proclaimed by the prophets of the Messiah who was to come to be the atoning sacrifice. Isaiah's depiction in Isaiah 53 is the gospel in the Old Testament in the most clear form. Paul says it's also to the Gentile. 
Now, a few years ago, uh, Lori gave me for my birthday or Christmas, don't remember, the 23andMe kit, right? So we sent it off. And for years I'd preached, you know, as far as I know, there's no Jewish DNA in the Tabor line all the way back to Noah. Um, we'd never traced it back that far, but family lore tells me I've got English and some Irish and a lot of Danish blood in, in us. Tabor's a, an English name. There was a Philip Tabor in 1621 who came over from Essex, England. And sure enough, there was no Jewish DNA in the test that came back. Now, if there was a Jewish heritage there, and just, just this uh, weekend, I met a lady who said, you know, we did the test and I found out that, that we do have Jewish lineage. I'd be proud to own it, be happy to own it, but it's not a necessary factor to have a relationship with a God who identifies himself as the God of Israel. And Paul says the power of the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. For, because in that world, you understand, uh, the world was the Jewish world or the Greek world, because even though Rome ruled, it was Greek culture. Rome captured Greece militarily, but Greece conquered Rome culturally, which is why the New Testament's written in Greek. We divide the world in lots of ways. We have the Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. We talk about East and West. Uh, we, we have lots of ways of dividing in missiology. We can talk about 1040 window and unreached people groups. One way we could look at the scriptures is how God divides the world. Uh, God talks about the nations and the nation, singular. Because when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and set his name upon him and promised that all the world, all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. God set aside the nation. In fact, God uses that phrase, Ami, my people, I think it's 163 times in the Old Testament scripture, and it's always, always referring to the Jewish people in context. In fact, 30-some of those times he says, my people Israel, but if you look at the context in every place, He's talking about the Jewish people, except for one. There's only one place where Ami is used, where he says, my people, Egypt. My people, Egypt. And that's in Isaiah 19, and it's a yet future time when Israel and Syria and Egypt will be one. How about that? Talk about peace for Jews and Gentiles. It's wonderful to be able to fast forward to the time when every tribe and tongue will confess, when nations from around the world will be bowing together in harmony and unity under the reign of the Prince of Peace to whom all glory belongs. Well, Paul goes on in his epistle, the, the most theological of his works, to talk about the fact that the Jewish people, uh, the chosen nation of God, have struggled with faith. And as a result, they're he says not all Israel is Israel, and he's not saying that not all Jewish people are Jewish. What he's saying is that the spiritual Israel, if you think of a Venn diagram, and this is all the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that there's a there's this remnant that Paul refers to that are believers, that are faithful. And you see that throughout the pages of the Old Testament. 
of times when a greater or lesser number of Jewish people were being faithful and obedient to the Lord. In other words, it's not just Jewish DNA, but to have the faith of Abraham that makes you part of, of true Israel if you have Jewish blood. Well, he talks about the condemnation of God against unfaithful, unrighteous, unbelieving Jewish people. And then he talks about the fact that the Gentiles are also unrighteous and disobedient. And in chapter 4, he talks about the fact that Abraham was justified by faith. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. So the pattern for how to be rightly related to the Holy One is by faith. By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is how Paul articulates it in Ephesians. But he also asks the question, was Abraham justified by faith before he was circumcised or after? I think, well, let's see. Genesis 15, 6 is where he believes God and is justified. Oh, and the, the covenant of circumcision isn't given until Genesis 17. So we would say, well, he was justified before he was circumcised. And Paul would say, you're right. You got it right. And that's so that he could be the father of faith of all who believe. And so I don't consider myself a spiritual Jew. I think the term Jewish needs to be reserved for people who are physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. That's why we talk about the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. That's Jacob renamed by God. And I'm not part of the physical family of Abraham, but according to what Paul says in Romans 4, that we as Gentiles who've come to faith in the Jewish Messiah, that we can call Abraham our spiritual father. We're spiritual sons of Abraham. And what a wonderful thing that is. You know, and I'm a Gentile preacher's kid. I grew up in the church and the Bible was always available for us. Old Testament, New Testament, it was my book. And when I read about Old Testament people, they were, they were kind of like my people. And it wasn't really until later on as I studied the scriptures more that I realized, no, there is the people, the nation of Israel, who God uniquely calls his own. And then there's all these other peoples of whom I'm a part, who God has called out some of us to be part of his forever family as well. And then I love Romans chapter, I mean, who doesn't love Romans chapter 8, right? Paul begins, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Jesus. Amen to that. No condemnation. No condemnation now I dread, the hymn writer says. And uh, he talks about what the law couldn't do and what the Spirit has done. And uh, he talks about we're not under obligation. We're under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, uh, but we are being led by the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God, which God gave through the Jewish people, and we have the Spirit of God, whom the Messiah promised to his church. And then he talks about all the challenges that we, ha we have in this life. And what shall we say then? Here's how he closes. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? This is good stuff. You know, you feel a little down, a little depressed, life is tough. Romans 8 is a good place to camp. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against us? Against God's elect. God's the one who justifies. Right? And then 
Verse 37, but in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah! This stuff will preach, right? And then it's as though Paul lays down his quill, you know, the lunch bell rings, he goes out for lunch. If Paul never got back to the manuscript and all we had was Romans 1 through 8, I think Romans would still be my favorite book. But Paul comes back from lunch and he starts a new chapter. And he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. And we stop and think, well, wait a minute, you just got done praising the Lord of glory and rejoicing in these wonderful spiritual gifts that are guaranteed to us as believers. You're on this worship high point, and now you bring us into the courtroom. I, Paul, promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me Holy Spirit. I said, well, okay. And we remember that Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the leading rabbi of his day, and was not a second row student, he was in the first row. Paul's trained to think like a rabbinic lawyer, and he's bringing us into the classroom, and he's promising, so help him Holy Spirit that he's going to tell us the truth. Okay, well, what do you got to say, Paul? So that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Okay, okay. what are you saying? Paul, what is it that's causing you such heartache? Why is your pillow soaked with tears at night? Aren't you the guy who wrote the book of Philippians? Aren't you the guy who said, Pantate Kairate, rejoice evermore? Aren't you that joy guy? Paul says, yes, but, but I've got this grief in my heart that's just overwhelming. Well, what's the cause for that, Paul? Verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed. Accursed? You're talking about, about being under God's condemnation? After you've just talked about that there is no more condemnation, that you could wish, you could want to be under that condemnation? Because when you're condemned by God, Paul, your future is not very good. If you're condemned by by God, if you're anathematized by the Holy One, you spend eternity in hell. And Paul says, you know, well, that's what I'm saying. I, I could wish that God would condemn my soul to burn in hell for eternity. And we think, <laughs> maybe the king had it right. Much learning hath made thee mad. This is crazy talk. Why would you want God to curse you? To be, to be separated from Christ? Why would you do that? Paul says, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to flesh. In case we didn't know Paul is, is Jewish. He says in verse 4, who are Israelites. So what you're saying, you're, you're, you're swearing yourself into the witness stand and you're saying that your heart is broken and, and the reason that your heart is broken is because of the Jewish people and if it were possible, you would trade your salvation so it would mean theirs. Is that really what you're saying? 
this sounds nuts. But then we remember Moses. When Moses is told by God, stand aside, Moses. You remember when Moses is up on the mountain, Exodus 32, and God looks over Moses' shoulder and he sees a worship service going on. This is your God, O Israel, who led you out of Egypt. But they're not pointing heavenward. They're not pointing to the mountain where God's meeting with Moses. They're pointing to the golden calf that they've made out of jewelry. And in the text of Hebrew, it says God's nose caught on fire. In English, our face flushes with anger. God's nose is burning with wrath. Stand aside, Moses. You see what your people are doing? I'm going to wipe them out. And in the face of an on-fire-nosed God, Moses preaches a sermon to God, three reasons why he shouldn't do that. Number one, they're your people, God. They're not my people, they're your people. Number two, what will the neighbors think? I mean, we know how the Gibeonites wanted to settle for peace, sue for peace, because they heard about God. You know about Rahab, who said, you know, we've heard about how God dried up the waters and rescued your people. It's not about Israel, folks. It's about Israel's God. The reason God set his name on Israel is so that they would be a light to the nations. They were his representatives on earth. And Moses says, you, you know, people know that you did all those 10 plagues. You executed your judgments against the gods of Egypt. But, but they died in the wilderness. I guess it's a secondary deity after all. What will the neighbors think? And what about those promises you made to the patriarchs? You, you are a God who keeps his promises, aren't you? And God relents, and he doesn't wipe out Israel. And Moses later says, take my life, Lord. Take my life but spare the people. That's what Paul's saying here. If it were possible, I would trade my eternal life. How much do I love the people around me? How much do I love my own family? Would I be willing to say I'd, I'd go to hell if it would mean their salvation? Of course, Paul's speaking theoretically, but he's not speaking cavalierly. He's saying my heart is broken. I have grief that won't quit. And then he says, they're my kinsmen, the Israelites. So we say, you're talking about the Jewish people, right? And Paul says, yeah, yeah, just a minute. He excuses himself from the witness stand. He goes over on the side, and here is a treasure chest. Now, I don't know about you, but I love stories like Treasure Island. Uh, the idea of, of finding hidden treasure uh, captured my mind as a boy. The idea of going up into grandma's attic and finding this old trunk that was forgotten and dusty in the corner and opening up and finding all this lost family treasure. Uh, what a thing. Well, Paul's got one of those treasure chests. It's got a star of David on it. And he, he pulls it. It's heavy. He, he drags it across the stage. He says, I want to introduce this as state's evidence. And he takes the key and he unlocks the treasure chest, and he begins to reach in and talk about the rich spiritual legacy that belongs to the Jewish people. Here it is. 
Verse four, to whom belongs the adoption as sons? God adopted in Egypt. God said, I will be to you a God and you will be to me a people. God calls Israel his firstborn. The glory, oh, the Shekinah, that, that pillar of fire at night, that cloud by day that led the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness, yeah, that was for the Jewish people. No other nation got that presence of God that way. The covenants, he pulls out a string of pearls. There's the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. These were given by God to the Jewish people. The giving of the law, that Torah that God inscribed with his finger on the stone tablets that Moses broke and God gives not only the 10 words, but he gives a lot of words. The rabbis count 613 commandments in the Pentateuch, the Torah, given to the Jewish people. The temple service, oh, that's right, that's right. That whole system, the Levitical priesthood, Aaron as the high priest, the sacrificial system, the way that a holy God would allow sinful man to have a relationship with him to be able to stand in his presence. God gave that to the Jewish people. And the promises, he pulls out handfuls of specific promises that God made to the Jewish people. He says, who are the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, these are Jewish progenitors. And then he reaches in and he pulls out the most valuable gem of all, the Messiah, the sparkling diamond of inestimable worth. And now we say, Okay, Paul, I, I really don't get this here. You're supposed to be making a logical case, and this is highly illogical. Because you're telling us that your heart is broken because the Jewish people are going to hell, and you'd even be willing to go to hell if it would stop them. And then you pull out this treasure chest and says it belongs to the Jewish people. Are you saying to me that you're crying over the rich folks? I mean, when was the last time you cried for the plight of the rich folks in town? Are you saying that you can have this spiritual treasure and still miss heaven? And Paul says, yeah, that's exactly why my heart's broken. Because all this blessing has been poured out upon my people. It's their heritage. But they're missing it. How do we know that they're missing it? Because Paul says in verse one of chapter 10, brother, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You don't pray for people to be saved who have a get out of hell free card. Just because you have a Jewish mom or dad does not mean that you have automatic entry pass into heaven. Well, but, but what about the religious Jews? Well, well what about them? Well, Paul, you were a Pharisee. You, you know how zealous. Paul says, yeah, I was zealous for the law. But he says in verse 2, I bear them witness. Here he's still on the witness stand. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness. Wow. The religious leaders of Israel don't know about God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And Paul, what you're telling us is that, that rabbinic Judaism is a, 
is a man-made religion. It's that ladder that the rabbis constructed that says, you can do this. In fact, after the destruction of the temple, which the temple still was standing, Paul went to the temple. It's recorded for us in the book of Acts. But when the temple is destroyed, the rabbis codified the three things, prayer, repentance, and keeping the commandments, that that was equal to righteousness. But the problem is that's not God's formula. And it's a man-made formula of seeking to establish their own. When you don't know about God's righteousness and you believe that there is a God that you're going to stand before and give an account one day, then you try to figure out, well, what, what can I do? But God has already told us what to do. He illustrated it through the faith of Abraham, and he gave the sacrificial system, and he gave Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and in Leviticus 17:11, he says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And we, we believe in prayer, and we believe in repentance, and we believe in good deeds, but all those together do not equal righteousness. Atonement is something that only God can give. Well, that's the treasure chest that belongs to the Jewish people, and I don't have any Jewish blood, so, so what's my legacy? What's my spiritual inheritance? So let's go over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, Paul tells us what we as, as Gentiles own, what our spiritual heritage is. First of all, he starts out in chapter 2, he says, uh, well, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that, that's a good start, uh, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, right? That's not a very great start. But then verse 11 says, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, non-Jews, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that sign of the covenant in Genesis 17, circumcision. Remember that at that time you were, here it is, separate from Messiah. Messiah belongs in the Jewish treasure chest. Got nothing to do with you over here, pagan Gentile. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. It didn't say... Jewish in your identity card, and strangers to the covenants of promise, that string of promises that God gave to Israel, having no hope and without God in the world. So we're dead in trespasses and sins, we have no hope, we have no, no God in this world, and we're excluded from all the good stuff God gave to Israel. Not a very happy legacy that we've inherited from our forefathers who worshiped the sun, moon, and stars and wood and stone. But now, here's that word but, that word that switches everything, that changes darkness to light. But now in Messiah Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our, here it is, our shalom, who made both groups into one, who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is a law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing shalom. Peace between Jews and Gentiles? Is it possible? Oh yes. Oh yes, it's possible.
it's a living reality for those who are in Messiah Jesus. Once we were dead, once we were condemned, but now we're made alive. We're justified. Once we were at enmity with God, but now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the Prince of Peace, who said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not like the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled and don't be afraid. And do we have reason to be troubled, to be afraid in our world? Well, if you watch the news, you would certainly think so. Our world is not heading in a good direction. The flood of anti-Semitism that is arise right now, I used to wonder, what would, what would it have been like to be in Germany in 1936 when Hitler starts to come to power? We just, we just had the anniversary of Kristallnacht this weekend, the night of broken glass. I think it was 85 years ago that the Jewish communities in Germany, uh, store uh, fronts were broken out and places of business looted and Jewish people beaten up and some were killed. We marked the beginning of the Shoah, the, the Holocaust, at Kristallnacht. And I used to wonder, what, what would it have been like to be in Germany and open up the newspaper on the day after and wonder, what in the world just happened? What's happening to our country? Why, why do we see such violence? Why are the Jewish people so hated? But, but I don't have to wonder that anymore, nor do you, because we're living in that world today. Satan is a defeated foe. The Lord Jesus defeated death and hell, the most powerful tools that Satan has, when he was raised from the dead for our justification. Satan is a defeated foe, and we know he's going to spend eternity in the lake of fire, but he's not there yet. And he's raging right now. You cannot explain the length and the depth and the breadth of anti-Semitism throughout the centuries if you don't understand that Israel is the apple of God's eye. Now there's an Israeli flag right here and it made my heart happy to see a Israel's flag among the flags of the nations. But I'm not here to wrap myself in an Israeli flag and say whatever Israel does is righteous because that's just not true. We're not talking about a holy people in the Holy Land yet. That kingdom of righteousness and peace that we long for is going to happen, but it's not going to be under a secular government in the Knesset. It's going to be under the Prince of Peace when he sets up his rule with a rod of iron, and justice will flow down like waters from Mount Zion. That day is coming. It's promised to us. Our hearts long for that. But in the meantime, we're living in a broken world and we're seeing the effect of what happens when people walk in darkness. And this rise of evil, this enmity, this hatred, this butchery, that's beyond comprehension. It's inhumane because it is demonic. That's the spirit that is sweeping over our country and over our world. And if we want peace with Jews and Gentiles, we're not just talking about a cessation of hostilities in Gaza. And we're not just talking about some peace accord that could break out like the Abraham Accords had us marching on a path that everybody was so optimistic about, which is why this 
October 7th attack was so devastating. But our hope cannot be in the United Nations. It can't be in the Abraham Accords. It can't be in governmental desires for trying to figure out a solution to this thorny Middle East issue. For us as believers, we know what the answer is. It's the same today as it was when Moses stood before God and interceded. It's the same as Paul's heart when he says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. We have instances of Jewish believers, Arab believers in Israel who are meeting together to pray for each other, for their communities. Not me praying for my community, me praying for your community and vice versa. It's a powerful, powerful witness. The power of the gospel to transform lives. If we really want peace between Jews and Gentiles, we've got to have that vertical peace. That peace with God that fills our hearts. We have to have the fruit of the Spirit, which includes love, joy, and peace. Do you long for peace? Are you proclaiming the gospel? Right here in Southfield, we have Muslims, we have Jewish people, we have folks who've come to this part of Michigan from various places in the world. And we, this congregation, has the opportunity to be Jesus to those people. That life-changing gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, is on our lips if it's in our hearts and we care for those people. Lord, how would you have us love our Muslim neighbors? How would you have us love our Jewish neighbors? You can fill in whatever ethnicity or national background that's represented in our community. And the question is, Lord, how can we reach them with your love so that the gospel can bring peace? Peace in our community, peace with you. Can I pray with you? I've got many more things that I would love to say, but we'll have to wait till the next time, should the Lord tarry. Let's look to the Holy One in prayer. Father, my heart is still full. It's full of gratitude to you for who you are and your loving kindness. That while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. When we were at enmity with you, when we were running from you, when we were least deserving of your favor, you loved us, you pursued us, you brought us to saving faith. And then you've entrusted us with this gospel, which is powerful for salvation to everyone who will believe it, whether they're from the nation or from the nations. And today you're still transforming hearts. And today there are people in Israel and Jewish people around the world whose hearts are aching. And many are wondering, where is the God of Israel? Thank you for those who are willing to stand up and love them in Jesus' name and say, here is your God. And for those among the Palestinian community and the wider Muslim world whose hearts are breaking for the tragedy that's unfolding before our eyes in Gaza, oh Lord, may your gospel powerfully penetrate in the darkest of places to bring light and love and joy and peace 
true shalom to all those who are hurting. To the praise of your glory, we ask, Lord, make us useful instruments as we walk before you in humility, faith, and obedience under the direction and power of that Holy Spirit whom you sent to live within us. To the praise of your eternal glory, we ask all these things. B'Shem Yeshua, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Be a light to this community. <laughs>